Well, it is so good uh, to be with you all as we start uh, this new series in the book of Acts. Um, I've been looking forward to this series for, for quite some time. Um, to those of you at Lake Mary and Waterford and at 33rd, it's so good to be with you. One of the things I loved about this summer was being able to be in person and worship with you all. Um, I just love, I love our Summit family. Um, and I love that we as a family get to look at our beginnings why we are actually here. Um, there's a church historian by the name of Michael Green, and he said this. He said, three crucial decades in world history. That is all it took. In the years between AD 33 and 64, a new movement was born. In those 30 years, it got sufficient growth and credibility to become the largest religion the world has ever seen and to change the lives of hundreds of millions of people. It has spread into every corner of the globe and has more than two billion punitive adherents. It has had an indelible impact on civilization, on culture, on education, on medicine, on freedom, and of course, on the lives of countless people worldwide. And the seedbed for all of this, the time when it took decisive root, was in three decades. It all began with a dozen men, a handful of women, and then the Spirit came. So much happened in 30 years. You and I, we, we are here because of what happened in those 30 years. Now, we as a church, as Summit Church, we're about to turn 17. In like a month, we're gonna be 17 years old. And God has done a ton through this place in 17 years. 33 nice serves. Um, we've had hundreds of people go to places like Africa and the Dominican Republic to serve. Over 2,000 people have taken the step uh, to be baptized. 3,000 backpacks have been given to, to students in need. Thousands of children have been told Jesus wants to be their friend forever. Countless people have come to faith and even more have returned to faith after walking away, sometimes even for years. How much more can God do with 13, 13 more years in this place? We're gonna be taking the next several weeks to look at our origin story because in one respect, we're 17 but we're also 2,000. The book of Acts is our history. It's our origin story. It's important to know where we came from. And so that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at how we got started. How did a ragtag group of mostly uneducated people with, with hardly any money and, real, and no real power, how, when competing with dozens of other religions, philosophies, and political movements, how in the world did this movement make it to us? If you read the uh, historians or social scientists about the beginning of Christianity in the church, they all pretty much say the same thing, and they really attribute us being in existence to three things. Early Christians died better than everyone else. They were more inclusive than everyone else, and they served better than everyone else. One historian said of the early Christians, they die well. When they were put into the arena with the lions coming after them, they were singing and smiling and praising God and hugging one another. To a great degree, the credibility of Christianity to the pagan world was that it had never seen anyone face death like that. They had never seen anyone with a peace 
that passes understanding. Christians are still dying well. As I was, as I was reading some of this about uh, the early church and how Christians died, I couldn't help but, uh, but think about the Charleston shooting. That happened in 2015 at Emmanuel AME Church. Um, I, I was recently a part of an interview. Uh, I, I do this radio show with Steve Brown, and we were interviewing um, a, a daughter of one of the victims of that shooting. And, um, and sitting in that interview, I just kept thinking, this does not make sense. Um, now, first of all, it doesn't make sense that white supremacy is still something we have to denounce. It's, it, it even seems like it's gotten worse uh, since 2015. Um, and so if you're at all wondering what Jesus thinks about that, he's against it. Um, but but in, in that interview, what struck me as being just absolutely insane was the same thing that confused the whole world. If you remember, uh, the day after the massacre at the arraignment of the, of the shooter, the family of the victims stepped forward and looked at him and said to him, I forgive you. Now, the woman we were interviewing, uh, she lived out of town and wasn't able to make it back in time for the arraignment, but her sister did. And she said when she saw on the TV her sister say to her mother's murderer, I forgive you, she screamed like she has never screamed before. And she said, she said all kinds of words that a pastor shouldn't say. She's a pastor, by the way. But then she came around too, and she forgave. In tragedy and death, Christians have a peace that passes understanding. In our own church family, in Lake Mary, uh, there's a woman by the name of Laura who, um, uh, who has terminal cancer. And in fact, uh, just this week, uh, many people who are part of Lake Mary, went to her house and they had communion with her uh, because she's not uh, gonna be able to leave her house. Um, and I preached at Lake Mary a couple weeks ago um, right after Laura had found out uh, that her cancer had come back and that there was really nothing uh, to be done. And Lake Mary, um, we're recording this on Thursday night and so I don't know if Laura is with Jesus right now or not, but I want you to know your whole Summit family is praying for y'all. Um, but, um, but on the Sunday that I was there, I, after the sermon, I just got to sit uh, with Laura and her husband um, and just listen to her. And y'all, there was a peace that passes understanding. I just wanted to sit there. I just wanted to soak in everything she had to say. If you ever have the opportunity to sit with a Christian who is facing death, do. I think in my life, the thing that has strengthened me more my faith more than anything else are the things said to me by Christians who are dying. So the early church, it exploded because they died better than everyone else. They also, according to historians, were more inclusive than everyone else. Now, when you hear that, you might, I mean, like me, you might think, well, that doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't ring true, right? Like I'm sure most people who aren't a part of church, um, they would not hear the word inclusive and immediately think of us. But maybe that's because we've lost our roots. Maybe this is an area that we need to be admonished by our origin story, where we need to get back to the early church. But if you look at history, and if you look at what history historians say about that early churches, they say the reason it exploded, the reason it kept growing was because it was so inclusive. 
Rodney Stark, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, states that a group has to be an open network in order to grow. You see, until Christianity, religion always divided people. It divided people by either region or race or class. If you think about primitive religions, um, they were divided by region. You know, if you lived in the mountains, you had your mountain god. And if you lived by the ocean, you had your ocean god. And whichever region you lived in, your god was the best. Or, or religion uh, like Judaism. It was built around a particular race or culture. If you wanted to become Jewish, you had to adopt all the customs of the Jews. You had to be circumcised. You had to, you had to celebrate certain holidays. Uh, we spent the beginning of this year looking at Paul's letter to the Galatians where he passionately addresses this, where he says Christianity is open to all people, no matter your race or your culture, because Christianity isn't about who you are and what you do, but who Christ is and what he has done for you. Or religion appeals to a particular class. At the time of the early church, Greek philosophy was all the rage, but that mostly appealed to the wealthy, to the educated, to the, to the, the people who had enough time to sit around and philosophize. You see, religion always divided people, but then Christianity comes along and everyone's included. Royalty or slave, rich or poor, Jewish or Gentile, educated or not, male or female, the early church was an open network. Now, I know there are parts of the New Testament, uh, especially the Apostle Paul, where you read it and you think, no, he treated women like second-class citizens. But that actually couldn't be further from the truth. Because listen, when you're reading the Bible, you can't know what it means until you know what it meant. And, and Paul continually in his letters to the early church is, is, is dealing with people who are scandalized by the fact that women were partners that they were equal partners, able to exercise their gifting alongside men. Let me give you an example. Um, when Paul it talks about us all being adopted as sons of God, Paul doesn't, um, he, he doesn't say we're all adopted sons and daughters of God on purpose, but not because he's being sexist. In fact, it is exactly the opposite. He's calling us both both men and women adopted sons because in his context and his culture, only sons had rights. He was radically proclaiming equal rights for women. And if that wasn't enough, his letter to, to the Romans, to the Roman church, Romans, arguably the greatest contribution that, is, that he made to us, the church, his clearest and most thorough presentation of the gospel, he entrusted to a woman named Phoebe not only did he entrust this letter to her for her to bring it to the Roman church because he was in jail, but he empowered her to teach it to them, to be the one to answer questions about it, to expound on it. See, you can't know what the Bible means until you know what it meant. So the early church was more inclusive than everyone else. So it grew. And lastly, the early church cared and served better than everyone else. We have a document from the Roman emperor Julian where he is frustrated about the spreading of Christianity and he wrote this, we can't stop these Christians. The reason they're so popular is the Jews take care of the Jewish poor. The Greeks take care of the Greek poor. The Romans take care of the Roman poor, but these Christians take care of all of them. The early Christians served everyone, cared about everyone. So the early church died better included better, served better. How do you think we're doing? How are you doing 
where can we be affirmed by our origin story and where are we being convicted by it? My hope is over the next few weeks as we delve into the early church, as we look at the beginning of Acts, we'll begin to see this. But there's something more to our origin story. There's something far greater than what the historians say. A former history professor at Yale, Kenneth Scott uh, Latterat, said, the more one examines the various factors which seem to account for the extraordinary victory of Christianity, the more one is driven to search for a cause underlying, underlying them all. It is clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy virtually unequaled in human history. Without it, the future course of the religion is inexplainable. Why this occurred may lie outside the realm in which modern historians are supposed to move. See what he's saying there? The historian Luke, who wrote Acts as well as the Gospel of Luke, tells us what the something more is. He gives us the answer that historians won't give. He tells us what that vast release of energy is. Now, I know that was a very long introduction, and now we're just getting to the biblical text, and you're probably worried that this sermon is gonna be so long, but I promise it's not, but I want you to stick with me because I wanna read to you that first sermon that Peter preached. I wanna read to you the entire sermon that he preached uh, because if we miss the underlying reason if we just look at the, the reason it grew was because Christians died better, because they, um, because they included better, because they served better, we'll, we'll miss the point if we don't get to the bottom of this. So I'm gonna read to you Peter's very first sermon. We couldn't fit it all in the bulletin, um, and so it might be better just to listen in. Maybe even if you have a Bible, just maybe just listen to the sermon. So let me see, set the scene real quick. It's Pentecost in Jerusalem. Uh, this is a day in which God-fearing Jews from all, other than, all over uh, the world, the known world at the time, they all came together in one place in Jerusalem. Um, and so there are people in Jerusalem that speak all different languages. Um, they're, they're all there. They're all together. And then Luke tells us that the Spirit of God descended upon the followers of Jesus, which at the time were only about 120 and those followers of Jesus began to speak to the people who had gathered from various parts of the world in their native language. And Luke describes it as a very crazy scene. It was so crazy, in fact, that the people observing what was happening thought everyone was drunk. And so Peter stands up, and this is what he says to the crowd. Our very first sermon, this is it. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. 
This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your holy ones see decay. You have made known to me the paths of light. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That's it. That's the first Christian sermon. Luke tells us when Peter finished preaching it, the people were cut to the heart. And they said, what should we do? And Peter looked at them and said, repent, be baptized. And then 3,000 of them did it that day. That sermon that I just read won a thousand souls and there weren't even any good jokes in it. So what was it? What was it about that sermon? It was the something more, the thing that historians leave out. It was Jesus. It was who Jesus was and what Jesus has done. Did you notice that Peter in this sermon doesn't mention anything about Jesus's teachings. He doesn't say Jesus told us to do this and this is how you should live and this is what Jesus taught. No, he doesn't do any of that. He simply says, this is who Jesus is. See, the something more isn't a teaching, it's a person. The whole message of Peter's first sermon is Jesus is alive and you killed him. That's the message that Peter gives that starts this whole thing. That's the reason that you and I, that we exist. Jesus is alive and you killed him. Verse 32, Peter says, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Uh, The apostle Paul, 15 years after the sermon, would write to the church in Corinth and he would say, he would say, you know, there were all these people that saw Jesus after his death, before he ascended to heaven. There are all these people. And then he says, and even at one time, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at the same time. Now, why is that important? 
Well, it's important because 15 years after the death of Jesus, the people who saw Jesus alive after his death were still alive. They could still be questioned. Listen, if this whole thing was a hoax, it would have been proved a hoax in the first 30 years, but it wasn't. During that first 30 years, in fact, more and more people believed that a dead man got up and walked out of his tomb and his name was Jesus. Jesus is alive. The intellectual atheist turned Christian apologist Josh McDowell said when asked what made him believe in Jesus, he says, for the very simple reason that I'm not able to explain away an event in history, the resurrection of Jesus. So if you're here and, you are, and you're trying to figure out what you believe about Christianity, um, I want you to know this. No first century witnesses, not a single one, disputes two facts about Easter Sunday. One, that Jesus' body was buried in a location that everyone knew. And two, that his body was gone by Sunday morning. So if Jesus is alive, if it wasn't proved a hoax in that first 30 years, you have to do something with it. Christianity is more than thinking, but it's not less. In Acts uh, 26, the apostle Paul goes before the, ki- the Jewish king Agrippa and he tells him the gospel. He tells him about Jesus' death and resurrection. The king begins to laugh. But then Paul looks at him and, and he doesn't say to him, hey, you just need to accept this on faith. He looks at the king and he says, what I am saying is true and reasonable. You know about these things, King Agrippa, for these things did not happen in some corner in secret. You've heard the reports. And we're told King Agrippa stops laughing. You see, if Jesus is alive, you have to do something with him. So that was the first thing. Point one, Jesus is alive. Point two, you killed him. Notice how many times Peter said, you killed Jesus He's talking to people from all over the world who weren't there when Jesus was crucified. He's talking to people who probably uh, wouldn't have have wanted Jesus to be crucified. But he says to them over and over again, you killed him. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. Verse 36, therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter knew that most of the people he was speaking to weren't there. And if they were there, they were probably passive bystanders. But Peter knew that you can only be cut to the heart. You can only die better than everyone else. You can only include better than everyone else. You can only serve better than everyone else if you know it's you and not them. They didn't kill Jesus, you did. John Newton, who wrote uh, the hymn Amazing Grace, also wrote another hymn titled The Look. Listen to these lyrics. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. See, the gospel is a matter of personal pronouns. It can't be something that just historically happened. It has to be something you did. I did. And Peter, Peter out of everyone, knew this in a profound way. 
This sermon that Peter preached is just 50 days after Jesus' death. It's just 50 days after Peter had denied Christ. 50 days after Peter had turned his back on his best friend who needed him most. In fact, when Luke, uh, who wrote Acts, and then the Gospel of Luke, when he's writing about the denial of Peter uh, and Jesus, in, in Luke 22, Luke tells us that after Peter denies knowing Jesus for a third time, at that moment the rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Take a minute just to picture, to imagine what that look felt like. Luke tells us after Jesus looked at Peter, Peter went out and wept bitterly. What would that face have looked like? It would have been purple at that point. It would have been bruised. His eyes probably would have been swollen where, where he could just barely open them. Not only would there be blood on his face, there'd be spit. Peter didn't do that. Peter didn't beat Jesus. Peter didn't want Jesus to die, but Jesus was dying because of him. Peter saw Jesus's life because of him being taken away. Peter saw his sins costing Jesus his life. Peter knew he crucified Christ. See, the difference between being religious and being a Christian is knowing you crucified Christ. What cuts you to the heart is knowing you crucified Christ. Listen, any of us can have an understanding that we've broken some rules. Any of us can have an understanding that our sin is breaking God's rules, but being cut to the heart is when you realize that your sins have broken God's heart. You and I, we can feel all kinds of shame and guilt over breaking God's rule. In fact, it can be a very crushing feeling, but that's not Christianity. Christianity doesn't say, oops, I've broken that. Christianity says, I've broken him. Jesus is alive and you killed him. And Luke tells us when the people heard that, what'd they do? They just said, all right, tell us what to do. Nothing you ask is too much. And Peter says, okay, repent and be baptized. That's enough. Because you see, the cross tells us our sin is so bad that God's son had to die, but that we're so loved that he wanted to do it. Verse 23 again, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Jesus knew what it would cost him to come. In fact, even before he created us, he knew that. In Revelation 13, 8, we're told that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. And he still made us. We were that worth it. See, the cross is our window in time to allow us to see the suffering and unconditional love which is eternally in the heart of God. It is who God most is. Don't you see that the cross, the very thing that convicts us, is also the thing that comforts us? It's not conviction plus comfort. It's the same thing. The conviction is the comfort. Why is Jesus hanging on the cross? Because you and me, we mean the world to him. Because he will take anything to save us, anything at all. He'll let nothing come between us. There is nothing that we could possibly do that will change his love for us. He will give up everything for us. He will lose even the connection with God the Father, which he had for all eternity. Why? He would lose it all so that he wouldn't lose us. 
Yes, we killed him, but he loves us. The same thing that tells us we're sinners is also the thing that tells us that we are infinitely loved. And Peter wasn't the only one who betrayed Jesus. Judas did too. But Judas goes out and kills himself. Peter doesn't. Why not? Because Peter saw the conviction and the comfort of the cross. But there's more. The conviction not only comforts, but the comfort also convicts. It actually changes the way you and I live our life. When, I, when, I, when I'm trying to rid myself of certain sins, um, for the most part, I start by thinking, if it, I better obey, because if I don't, he'll reject me. Or if I, if I know that I've already broken the rule, I better figure out how to fix it, or I'm out. But what if instead of trying to fix it, I look at the cross. I see the cross and I say, I need to obey him because he will never reject me. Because nothing I can do will ever make him reject me. If I say I must obey because he'll never reject me, that cuts to the heart. It doesn't just bend the will. Jeff Kern, one of our pastors here, says it's not about willpower, but about an empowered will. The cross, rightly understood, empowers our will like nothing else. Jesus is alive, and you killed him. That's why we're here. That's why we're still here. And maybe you still have questions about Jesus. Maybe uh, you've even been to church your whole life, um, but what you understood was that it was a, a bunch of rules that you had to keep. You never really understood that the something more was a person. We have a great group uh, called Starting Point uh, that we do um, often, uh, which it's, I think it's in your bulletin this week, but it's just a, a place for you to come and just hear some of the basics about Christianity and ask any questions that you have with no judgment. So maybe that's the next right step. But also, anyone can be a Christian today in this moment. Any one of us can be a part of a people that at their truest selves die better, include better, and serve better than everyone else. It's not about figuring out how to do those things. It's not about what you give to God. It's about what he will give to you if you just ask. You just have to say, Lord, I, I see I see that I've not only broken your rules, but I've broken your heart. I see that my sin has cost you your life. Therefore, I trust not in myself, but I trust in what you do for me. I'll follow you no matter what. I'll come to you with no conditions. Be Lord and Savior. Peter, in that first sermon, quotes the prophet Joel and says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's it. So take as long as you need, but no longer than is necessary because today you can be saved. And for my fellow adopted sons of God, my fellow Christians, if you are struggling with sin right now, I mean, I get it. I wish I could speak uh, hypothetically about this, but if you are struggling with sin, are you beating your will instead of allowing your heart to be melted? Peter says, look to him. Peter says, Jesus is alive and you killed him. 
And the people who got that changed the whole world in 30 years. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for uh, your spirit that took men and women from all over and cut them to the heart in a way that gave them what they needed to change the world for your sake. And Father, as we as a church look at the early church over these next few weeks, may we see clearly what you had in mind when you thought the church up. May we see clearly what you've called us to. Father, may we understand so deeply the underlying reason, the vast, may we tap into that vast energy that was released through your son giving his life. May we so understand that Jesus, you are alive and that we killed you, that we can't help but tell the world about you. Father, I don't know if, if there's anyone in here who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, but I pray, uh, Father, today that, that this would be the day that they surrender to you, that you would so tug on their heart that they cannot deny you any longer. And for those of us who have followed you a long time, maybe even have become weary of following you, maybe we, may we be rejuvenated by the truth of your gospel. May we be rejuvenated by your son's love for us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Can you please stand and worship with us?